0: To get that deal and let's get on with the show. So, we're at the seven month mark of the Joe Biden administration. We're all thinking the same things. Can we really survive another three and a half years? I'm sure we can, where the American people were very resilient, but he's definitely making it tough on us. In which ways is he making it tough? Well, let's go over some of the things that we have seen over the last couple of weeks. We're going to be talking about the editorial page from the Los Angeles Times wrote a glowing article essentially encouraging Joe Biden to stick with the same timeline that he has for Afghanistan. On top of that, we've also seen standards of learning tests come in for students. We actually know how students performed 2020 during the lockdowns with a lot of remote learning and other things like that. We're actually gonna dig a little bit into what has actually happened with our students. We're also gonna be talking about a Supreme Court decision. Turns out the Supreme Court shut down the CDC's eviction moratorium. Was this a good thing to do, a bad thing to do? We're gonna discuss all of that and more coming up on Making the Argument with Nick Freitas where we make the arguments to defend a free society. Okay, so before we take a look at, at everything I just mentioned, I, wanted, I want to go into something very quickly because if you're following politics at all across the country, you'll know that Virginia is one of the few states right now that actually has elections going on. So the entire House of Delegates is up for re-election. I'm up for re-election this year. And uh, Governor Terry McAuliffe. Right, he used to be governor of Virginia. We only have one term in Virginia, so he used to be governor. Then Ralph Northam of uh, blackface and KKK uh, cloth wearing fame, he has to step down this year. And now we have another election for governor, and Terry McAuliffe is once again running to be governor of Virginia. But there's a problem. There's a problem. It turns out Terry, who's been involved in politics, I I think since before I was born, forgot to fill out his paperwork correctly. In fact, he didn't even sign. The document he was supposed to for a statement of candidacy, and what's interesting about this is he, he turns in this document, he turns in one of the documents that he needs to run for governor, and two other people signed as witnesses saying that he signed the document. It turns out he didn't sign the document. Now, you may be thinking to yourself, Nick, this is a technicality. I mean, come on, he, he won the Democratic nomination, he's the candidate, and you know what? A couple of years ago, I would have been really sympathetic to that argument. So why am I not sympathetic to it now? Well, it's very simple. See, I have also had a paperwork issue in my past, and it was interesting because when we had our paperwork turned in late, and I accept full responsibility for it, right? The electoral board had the discretion to be able to grant a grace period. And the electoral board said, look, we granted a grace period, it was 10 day, you were past the 10 day grace period, you don't get to be on the ballot. And so we we fought with them. we asked him, we we talked to him about it, we said, look, we are the nominee, you know, like we, there's gotta be some way that we can get on the ballot. And the electoral board, which controlled by Democrats, mind you said, nope, you screwed up, you didn't get your stuff on time, so your name does not get to be on the ballot as the Republican candidate. In fact, your name doesn't get to be on the ballot, period. So I had to run a write-in campaign For a state legislative seat that represents 80,000 people. And as you can imagine, that's a pretty difficult process. But we knuckled down. We worked really hard. We educated the voting public on what was going on. And we won our writing campaign. In fact, we won it by 15 points. It's not like it was a squeaker. But we had to work incredibly hard to do that. So here's the question. Is the Democrat-controlled Electoral electoral Board in Virginia going to hold Terry McAuliffe to the same standard that it held me? And, and... The amazing part is that nobody expects it to do this. Nobody expects them to actually hold them by the same standard that they held me. Why? Because I'm a Republican and he's a Democrat. Now, we could be wrong because I distinctly remember sitting at a meeting where the electoral board basically came in and said this paperwork issue and, and people turning in late, because it's not like I'm the only one that's ever done this. right? This has been done a lot of times before. Democrats, Republicans have both had issues with it. But the electoral board said last year, this is the last time we're doing this. We're not granting any more extensions. We're not giving any more you know, grace periods. You either get your paperwork in on time, filled out correctly, or you don't. They said that. It was a Democrat member of the electoral board, a Democrat-appointed member of the electoral board that said that. We're not doing any more grace period. And then he went on to say that, look, if this is such an issue, well, then the state legislature can take this up. And they can change the law with respect to when your paperwork's due or what's due or the timelines or whatever. They can do that. So what did the Democrat-controlled state legislature do? Nothing. They had full power to change the law if they wanted to. If they wanted to bake in a grace period or if they wanted to, you know, say that, hey, look, certain things are more important than that. They said no. In fact, they all got a huge kick out of talking about what a moron I was for not getting my paperwork on time. And so, nope, they were going to stick to it. The rules are the rules. The law is the law. And that's what you have to do. Oh, I didn't say it, they said it. So now we get to see whether or not they meant it, now that it's Terry McAuliffe that has failed to fill his paperwork out appropriately. And a lot of people are saying, well, no, this is different than Freitas' case because he was late with his paperwork. I, I got news for you, last time I checked, if you put in, if you turn in your paperwork on time, but filled out incorrectly, as in the candidate forgot to sign it, have you turned it in on time? You've turned something incorrect in on time, I mean, shoot! If, if that's the rule, you can turn in your. As long as you turn in the paperwork, even if it's incorrectly filled out, even if you've forgotten to sign it, they're still going to accept it. No, I, I don't think so. And so I remember very clearly, and I took a lot of heat, and you know what? Justifiably so. I took a lot of heat, and justifiably so. But I had to pay the consequences. Okay, I had to run a writing campaign. So that's what we did. So Terry, good luck, brother. And and to the electoral board, all I'm asking is that you stand by your decision and let's not come up with a thousand different reasons why it's different this time. Because the same people, again, that were mocking me in the Washington Post and, and newspapers all across Virginia, the same ones that were mocking me and saying that I was getting what I deserved, have now flipped and are all saying, well, this is the Republicans so nervous about Terry McAuliffe that they're trying to win in a legal battle as opposed to winning with the electorate. You know what? Sorry but your articles from a couple years ago didn't age well. So you're gonna have to deal with this. You're either gonna have to be intellectually honest. And, and here's, here's just a little piece of suggestion for all the newspapers out there. Um, try a little intellectual honesty and consistency. I mean, try it on for size. I mean, I know it hasn't been a thing you've done for quite some time now, but now maybe, maybe here's your opportunity to say, you know what, this was the rule, this is what we supported, this is what we said, were the, the facts on the ground when it was a Republican candidate that we didn't like. And in order to be fair, we've got to apply the same standard to a Democratic candidate that they do like. Let's see if they do that. I mean, they haven't so far, but let's see if they do it. Because quite frankly, if you don't, and if all of a sudden the legal system and the electoral board makes a bunch of excuses for Terry McAuliffe that they would not accept for others, then we have every right to call into question your intellectual honesty and consistency. All right, so let's see what happens. Let's see what happens. It should be fun. All right, let's move on to let's move on to this next article, right? Because because speaking of one standard for the left and another standard for the right, we have this Los Angeles Times editorial board that that did this article where they were talking about how you know, essentially, it, it's people on the right, it's Republicans, it's these people that are disingenuous, that have all these problems with what's going on with the withdrawal. And then actually, Joe Biden is doing the right thing, not only by precipitously pulling out all of our troops without making sure that we had proper security on the ground, to be able to protect both American citizens and Afghan allies, but that they, he should stick to the timeline. And again, for those of you keeping track at home, And we've now seen it. We've had a Democrat congressman over here who was was an Iraq veteran, an Afghan vet. We've had a Republican congressman over there. We've had a bunch of of former special forces, former special operations veterans that went over there and voluntarily conducted their own rescue operation where they literally got hundreds of Afghans safely from inside Kabul where the Taliban was, was guarding and hunting them onto the airfield. And even that has not been enough because Joe Biden will not allow other people to come in and to assist We'll get into more about why I know that's true, but he hasn't let other people come in and assist with the evac operations. And so now we're at a point right now where most of the Americans have gotten out. A lot of our Afghan allies have not. And then some of the things that the administration is saying, I want to I want to key into this. Some of the things the administration is saying is, well, everybody that wants to get out, we're, we're making a way for that to take place. We're making that. But some people have voluntarily chosen to stay. Okay. Here's the reality of that statement, because this is another one of those things that politicians do where they give you what is technically a true statement, but they leave out very important information and very important context when they make it, right? And in logic, we call it, it's a a lie of omission, right? So he's saying that, hey, we've offered it to certain people and they voluntarily decided to stay. Let me ask you a question. You're with the former Afghan security forces or Afghan intelligence, and you've been working with Americans for the last five, 10, 15, 20 years. And the Taliban knows who you are at this point, and they've got a target on your head. And the Biden administration says, no, no, no no problem. You can come, you can evacuate to the United States. Oh, oh but, but not your wife or not your children or not your parents, right? You can, but you've got to leave key family members there. Or maybe they'll let you take some family members, but not other family members. So if you're the sort of honorable person that wants to take care of your family, Are you going to abandon vulnerable members of your family to get on the plane and and flee to safety? Is that what you're going to do? Well, a lot of people have, have made the choice that I hope all of us would, which is to say, I'm not going to abandon members of my family to the depredations of the Taliban in order to save my own skin. And so that is where Biden gets to come in on some of these situations, not all of them, but some of these situations and say, well, we offered them a way out. They decided to stay. No, you, you didn't offer them a genuine choice. You offered them a choice to get them to safety and then have to get to the United States or wherever they go next and hear about what happens to their family that they left behind. That's not a real option. That's not a real option. It's disingenuous to talk about that as if that was, that was a, a, a clear option that was being provided when, again, we made certain commitments to these people. So it's incredibly frustrating, and and we've talked about this before. And and you know what? Here's what I find interesting. While the LA Times editorial board is bending over backwards in order to give top cover to the Biden administration, here's an interesting question. Any of those members from the LA Times editorial board, any any of them hunkered down in a building right now in Kabul, praying to God that they can get out? Any any of them faced with a decision where the only way they can get to safety is by leaving family members behind? Are they faced with that decision? Or are they writing this op-ed from a nice, comfortable, protected, air-conditioned office on the West Coast of the United States? I'm guessing it's the latter. I'm guessing it's the latter. But, but, this is, but what I also find fascinating about this, and this is not just the LA Times, but it's, it's a ton of different editorial boards. Um, the White House Press Corps has, has essentially become a bunch of like court historians for the Biden administration. Very few of them willing to ask the sort of pressing hard questions that every one of them would have been chomping at the bit to ask if Donald Trump was president, if any Republican was president. I mean, do you, do you think we'd be getting softball... Do you think a Republican president right now would be getting softball questions about their dog with everything that is going on in the country right now? I'm, I'm willing to bet no. And yet, that's what we see happening with our White House press corps. That's what we see happening among people at the editorial... Uh, page at the L.A. Times. By the way, these are the same news outlets that just realized that Gavin Newsom is probably going to lose his recall election. And so, what have they done in the last couple of weeks? They have all decided to get on board and just pile on. Larry Elder, who's who's the leading Republican in that uh, election for the recall effort out there. But this is this is what we have become so used to seeing: whether it's Terry McAuliffe screwing up his paperwork and then being held to a different standard, whether it's the the press coming to the aid of a particular politician that they adore, despite the the fact that they've been caught. in in scandals, whether it's the Biden administration clearly, completely botching up the Afghanistan withdrawal and and, and getting softball questions from the media. This is what we've come to expect. And, and, And quite frankly, this is one of the reasons why I do this podcast. This is one of the reasons why I do it, because I think people deserve to hear a different perspective and different insight with respect to what's going on in the world, because we can no longer trust most of our outlets within mainstream media to even present a different perspective, right? Without creating like a straw man where they just create this caricature of a conservative argument and then knock it down. Right? If if they were just as hard on Joe Biden as they as they are on Republican presidents, especially Donald Trump, I I would at least have some respect for him, even if I didn't necessarily agree with, with their conclusions. But what they've demonstrated is that rather than being an objective media outlet, with an editorial side of what they do, the editorial is what they pitch when they tell you it's objective reporting. And I think we're all done with it. And I think what you see in Afghanistan is a perfect, perfect demonstration of just the absolute departure from reality of so many members of our mainstream um, media. And this isn't the only case, right? We all know this, right? This isn't the only case, but there was another incident that happened recently and that had to do with the Supreme Court decision. So the Supreme Court struck down the eviction moratorium. And what the eviction moratorium was essentially is the CDC, the Center for Disease Control, is now essentially setting rental policy throughout the country. So you have an executive branch agency that put out a policy which said you're not allowed to evict someone if they live in an area that has a certain percentage of of Delta variant uh, infections. And, And the problem with this and I'm going to hit this from a different angle because a lot of conservatives will argue this from the perspective of the landlord. They're saying, like, look, it, it's not fair to tell a bunch of landlords that you essentially you, you run the risk of losing your property because you can't pay the mortgage because your renter is not paying rent. At, at the same time that the government is handing people checks, they're actually paying people more money to stay at home and not work than get back into the economy. right? So this is not just a health issue. We're talking about Able-bodied, healthy people that are not going to work because the government is literally paying them more by taking your tax dollars for people to stay at home than they are to go back into the workforce. And that's not healthy for them in the long run. It's not healthy for our economy. It's certainly not healthy for our taxpayers. And it's not healthy for landlords either. All right, so that that's the typical argument. I want to give this from a different perspective because I think this is really important to understand. And we actually see where this has happened before within history. This is not some newfangled idea that we're, we're coming up with because there's a lot of ways that the left tries to argue for affordable housing, right? Or they try to argue for things like rent control or they try to fight for these eviction moratoriums or they grant a bunch of protections to tenants that are not extended to landlords. And they always, they always pitch it as this idea, though. Look how, look how nice and warm and compassionate and generous they all are. Because they're sticking up for the little guy, whereas the Republicans are sticking up for the the mean, nasty, greedy landlord. Okay, first of all, that that dynamic is is not an accurate reflection of what's going on. Are there certain people that are falling on hard times through little to no fault of their own that, that need a need a helping hand? Absolutely, and I think we can agree on that, and we can talk about that all day long. Okay, are there are there other people that are taking advantage of the system because they realize now? that the government is creating a situation where they no longer have to pay rent that they agreed to pay in order to stay in somebody else's property. Yeah, that's a problem. And that's not just a problem for landlords. Let me tell you who that's also a problem for. That is a problem for renters. And we, we have seen this in other countries. We've seen it in the United States at various times. Here's what ends up happening. If I go and I, and I buy a piece of property and, and a lot of people have this picture of landlords as if they're like these big fat cats that have all these rental properties. I can tell you right now, my mother, my, my mom, who was a single mom, worked really hard to buy a duplex when we were growing up. And we lived in one half of the duplex, and then she had a renter and, another, and the other half of the duplex, right? Single mom nurse. If she didn't have someone that could pay the other half of that rent, she would have lost that duplex, and we also would have been on the street. So when you think renter, don't just think you know, big fat cat landlord, because even those people are entitled to protection. They're not a bad guy because they rent property. All right. But it's also the person that is scraped by that is trying to be fiscally responsible, is trying to plan for their future. And so maybe they buy some property and, and they rent it out to somebody and they are dependent upon that rent getting paid in order to pay the mortgage that they owe to the bank, which by the way, the bank has much better lobbyists than the landlord does. So they're trying to pay that mortgage to the bank in order to keep that property so somebody can rent it. If the government starts making a habit of coming in and telling people that they're allowed to squat, they're allowed to stay in a place without paying rent, here's what's gonna end up happening. You're going to have less people willing to rent somebody, especially to somebody that they're not as sure, like they may be willing to take a chance on somebody. If, they, if, if you come in and you say, look, you know, hey, I've, I've got a job, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm making this much, but I can pay the rent and I'll be on time. And maybe they're willing to give you a chance, even though they're taking a risk there. But if the government starts coming in and saying, nope, once you've rented to them, you cannot evict them, even if they're not paying rent over multiple months, even if they're not paying rent, when the government is paying them more, than what they would make if they went to the workforce. If they're still not paying rent and you can't kick them out, you're gonna have less people willing to assume that risk, whether it's on the building and construction side of housing and rental properties, or whether it's on the landlords that are willing to assume the risk by renting their property to somebody else. And in the end, you're going to end up with the shortages. That's what happens. Or here's what's gonna happen. People are gonna chart rent is going to go up because now there's additional concerns that the landlord has to be concerned about before they rent to somebody. So before, maybe they were willing to give you a shot or maybe they are willing to give you a chance or work out some sort of deal. But now if they're concerned that they won't be able to get their money and pay their mortgage, they're going to be a lot, they are going to be incredibly selective with who they rent to. And now you're going to have people that maybe don't have the same resources or don't have the same credentials when they go to rent. They're, not, they're going to be the ones out of luck. So the very people that you're claiming to help, you may be helping them for a very small period of time, but you're not helping them in the long run. And let me, give you, let me give you another example of how ridiculous this policy has gone. So in Virginia, the Democrat controlled legislature had, I think it was around $2 million that they set aside for legal representation for tenants to be able to sue their landlords if they were evicted. Now think about that for a second. You have landlords. or you have renters, that because of maybe the lockdowns that the government implemented during Corona, maybe due to other various reasons, can't pay their rent. And the Democratic Party said, we're gonna take $2 million and we're not gonna give it to you to pay your rent. We're not gonna give it to the landlord so they don't evict you. No, no, no. What we're gonna do is we're gonna give it to a bunch of attorneys so you can sue your landlord. So now not only is the landlord out-rent, but they might find themselves in court having to pay legal fees as well because that's gonna solve the problem. Brilliant. Why would you do something like this? Well, it turns out a lot of the trial lawyer unions really like to vote for some of these same people that are willing to take your tax dollars in order to give it to trial lawyers in order to sue you because you just needed to collect rent from your tenant so you could pay the mortgage. That's how absurd this has gotten. So what happened was is the Supreme Court came down and essentially said, look, if you want to pass an eviction moratorium, then Congress is going to actually have to do it. You cannot delegate that responsibility to an executive branch agency who can now, without any concern with respect to how this affects the rental market, how it affects affordable housing, how it affects people's ability to pay the rent or their mortgage, just decree from the Center for Disease Control, which again, last time I checked, no expertise in real estate, that they can tell people that, okay, now you're out billions of dollars nationwide because we've decided. Like, no, that that has to follow a legislative process, because it turns out the Supreme Court recognizes something that a few of the justices on the Supreme Court don't, and clearly a lot of people within the left-wing media don't, and that is, um, we're still a representative republic, and if you want to do something like that, we can have a debate on whether or not it's right or wrong, good policy, bad policy, but you sure as hell don't get to go tell an executive branch agency, you know what? Gosh we got a lot of other legislating to do right now, so we're just going to pass this off to you. You know, a bunch of people that were elected by nobody, and you get to make the decision that it's going to have potentially disastrous effects all over the country. So that's what the Supreme Court decided. I honestly wish they would have gone a little farther, because the idea that the government can come in and tell somebody that you are required by law to house someone in your property against your will and without compensation, you know what that sounds a lot like? The Quartering Act. I mean, every left-wing newspaper that's saying, oh my gosh, the Supreme Court is throwing people out on the street. Yeah, they're not looking at the, they're not looking at the other side of the issue. And King George III has gotta be rolling over in his grave right now going, wait a second, didn't you guys fight a war over this? Because that was King George's argument. We're gonna bring over government officials there and we're gonna quarter them in your house against your will and without compensation. And you can deal with it. There's something fundamentally wrong about that because it violates core tenets of private property rights. Does any of that mean that we can't find a way to come together and help people that need assistance to make sure that they're not thrown out or that they have housing in the midst of a crisis? No, we we can do those things. We can agree on those things. But you look at the policies that they are using, and it's just a complete departure from reality or any understanding of how economics or or contracts or property rights works. So I I believe the Supreme Court made the correct decision. And I think it's a little bit absurd at the sort of treatment that they're getting and the headlines that are reading off this. Because honestly, we do not want the federal government to have the sort of power where an executive branch agency can compel you by law, can punish you, and force you to keep somebody in your property that you don't want there, that is not even paying rent for that property. I mean, I'm sorry, but if the left can't see the potential problems with that, I I don't know what to tell you, because that's a major overreach of executive power. So the Supreme Court made the right decision. Okay. Okay. And while we're talking about too much government interference in our lives, let's talk a little bit about SOL scores. Let's talk about test scores in general. And the reason why I say SOL is because here in Virginia, we have something called the standards of learning. And these are the tests that we use to evaluate how students are doing. Now, look, I'm not a huge fan of, of education by test. Okay, but tests do serve a limited purpose, right? They provide some sort of marker, some sort of metric whereby we can tell what the progress is of our students. in. Categories of English, math, et cetera. Well, we got the SOL test back from last year during the lockdowns, during the pandemic. And what did we find? It was horrible for Virginia students. And the, the people that were hardest hit were generally people in poor communities where they actually saw like a, a 50% drop in their overall math scores, right? I mean, it, it, was, it was really bad across the board, but there were certain communities that were especially affected by this because they, de- they weren't able to get the in-person learning Uh, that is far more beneficial and conducive for most people to learn, right? Some people can learn online. Other people really need that person-to-person interaction. And here's what I think is fascinating about this, because nothing would be easier uh, than to do what a lot of people are doing right now in politics, which there was there was one article that said, SOL scores across Virginia take a dive in 2020, 2021. SOL scores plummet across Northern Virginia. Educators say comparisons are meaningless. Now, again, this wasn't all educators. This was just a certain group of educators. And we see the same thing with the head of the teachers union within uh, Los Angeles as well, essentially saying that this is no big deal. You know, our, our kids learned a lot during the pandemic. And, and you know, there's no loss of learning. Pure garbage, right? There was clearly loss of learning. We, we clearly have a bunch of students right now that essentially have been set back significantly within their educational timeline. And let's face it, you're not supposed to spend your entire life in school. You're supposed to spend a certain amount of time there. So it prepares you in order to go out and be you know, socially independent, economically independent, and be a productive member of society, be able to take care of yourself, your family, your community, et cetera, right? That's the whole purpose of education is in order to provide you those building blocks so that you can go out and make your life your own. All right. And when you lose an entire year of that, it it upsets that entire process. And the real question we have to ask ourselves, because a lot of these these people are saying, well, you can't compare that because obviously we had a pandemic. We had a huge lockdown. We didn't have in-person learning. You can't blame us for that. Here is exactly why I can blame you for that. Because numerous times, numerous years, I know because I've personally carried the legislation where we have attempted to set up an infrastructure where parents could use a portion of their tax dollars, or at least get a tax credit to take their child and get put them in the educational institution that worked best for them. And what's fascinating is if we would have had that infrastructure in place, here's what it would have meant, is that when you have a pandemic, and when you have a lockdown, and now maybe you need a situation where your, your class sizes need to be very uh, much smaller, maybe need more one-on-one tutoring. Maybe you need a whole host of different ways to be able to get kids the education they need based off of their specific needs, as opposed to what the government has decided from on high they should have. That would have been a far more robust environment and marketplace in which parents coordinating with teachers and their kids could have gotten the education that they needed. Now, would there still have been difficulties? Absolutely. But there would have been choice built into the system instead of this one-size-fits-all draconian, we in Richmond know best, way to run education. But that's what they did. They advocated for that. They wanted a one-size-fits-all solution. And then when we did have a pandemic, and all of a sudden, we needed things like learning pods. We needed things like more tutoring. We needed things like, uh, like options for students that can meet them where they were at based off of potential learning disabilities, or English as a second language, or whatever else it might have been to help keep them on track, the options that parents had available to them were incredibly limited because certain people within government want those parents to be absolutely, completely, and totally dependent upon them for their child's education. And in the midst of a crisis, that one-size-fits-all monopolistic government system could not adapt appropriately to get those parents, teachers, or even students what they needed. And so, yes, I do blame you for this. And yes, you can owe these comparisons because every time we tried to inject a little bit more flexibility or choice into the process, your answer was no. So, this is the public education you have created. It failed students. You would not allow for additional options. You get to own it. That's how that works. And, and I'm not gonna sit here and allow you to make a bunch of excuses when you had options and you outrightly rejected them. And now going forward, I, I will tell you what, because I got a lot of parents asking me, what am I gonna do? Because now we're fighting these mask mandates. And it's the idea of you got parents saying, I, I've got everyone from parents to students to special ed teachers saying, Nick, I cannot teach my kids wearing a mask, right? They, they need to actually see my, my face in order for me to be able to effectively convey instructions, in order for me to teach them how to properly speak and communicate effectively, in order to understand the instructions I'm giving them. I can't do it with a mask, I'm sorry. They need it, or it's a distraction for them. I can't explain to my child, my seven-year-old, why they gotta have a mask on all day. Or my my child wears glasses and they constantly fog up and it's a constant distraction and they're not able to learn at the right effect. And now again, the other side of the argument is, is that if you really think cloth masks are drastically reducing transmission, Okay, again, I'm waiting to see the studies on on where cloth masks have an effect that greatly reduces transmission. But here's where we're at, and we keep having these battles. Why? Because one side of this argument insists that you have to do it the way they want to do it. Keep in mind, this is not, whether it's critical race theory, whether it's standardized tests, whether it's masks, whether it's lockdowns, whatever it is, The solution doesn't have to be our side wins and nobody wears masks or your side wins and everybody wears masks. It doesn't have to be our side wins and you don't teach critical race theory, your side wins and everybody teaches critical race theory. We don't have to have that dynamic. We can have a dynamic where individual parents work in conjunction with teachers can make individual decisions based off of the needs and requirements of their students from an educational perspective and a healthcare perspective. But nope, they won't allow for that. It's got to be this way. And, and I'm sorry, but the one thing that you cannot escape in that sort of argument is that ultimately what you're relying on is force and coercion to make everybody else do what you want. I, I'm, not, I'm not taking that position. If you want to put your child into a school that, that, that teaches a, the 1619 Project, I am perfectly willing to allow you to do with your tax credit which you would like to facilitate your child's education. All I ask is that I be afforded the same opportunity. And then you know what? We can allow reality to demonstrate to us which one of us did a better job. Or maybe we'll come to the conclusion that different children need different things with respect to their education and a one-size-fits-all solution doesn't work no matter who's controlling the one-size-fits-all solution. I don't think that's too much to ask. So I represent the side of this argument that wants everyone to have individual choices on this in order to choose what's best for them. And I am constantly fighting against people, not based off of individual issues like masks or CRT, I am fighting against anyone that is insisting on a one-size monopolized government-controlled system. Because that doesn't afford you choice. And that's the real problem. And if we're serious about solutions, then we need to start providing greater opportunities and choice within the system, instead of allowing politicians to turn us against one another based off of a whole host of issues that shouldn't even be coming up and don't have to come up. All right, so let's go ahead and wrap this up. All right, so we're talking about three things today, right? Well, we talked about four because I had to get a jab in Ontario. I'm sorry, I had to. I had to because I was so sick of seeing the same media outlets that just were, I mean, giddy with excitement on talking about what a moron I was. And now they are all over there crying in their Cheerios at the fact that Terry McAuliffe might might have to run a writing campaign. And the way they've reported is very different as a result based off of who the candidate is. All right. But three things we talked about. Mainstream media failing us. Again, this, this editorial by the Los Angeles Times is just absolutely ridiculous. And the softball questions that the Biden administration is getting from the White House press corps suggest to me that the White House press corps is not what they think they are, which is a bunch of cutting-edge, top, hard-hitting, objective journalists, but instead, depending on who the president is or what party's represented in the White House, they go from either being hard-hitting journalists that are, are constantly trying to trip up the chief executive to nothing more than sycophantic court historians that are constantly trying to give cover for the administration that they prefer, right? And, and that has got to stop. And the only way it's going to stop, honestly, is there has to be more competition within the marketplace. That is one of the reasons why we do this podcast. This presents competition to the other side. I've had people ask before, why do you go on YouTube? Why do you go on Facebook? Why do you go on Twitter? Why? Because I'm going to hit back and I'm going to fight. and I'm going to make these arguments in those spaces. I'm going to make them as many spaces as possible, but I want these arguments to be held in those spaces. What's the second point? The Supreme Court They made the right decision with the eviction moratoriums. There is a way that we can help people through no fault of their own, find themselves in a bad situation and and, uh, granted, we don't want them thrown out on the streets, but there's a way to help them without creating a situation where landlords are left holding the bill And you've created this long-term perverse incentive where people are less likely to rent to the people that need it the most because they are terrified of some politician going in there and using sophistry and slick marketing in order to convince somebody that they are helping them when in reality, they are hurting their long-term prospects to ever be able to afford housing, right? So we we need to make sure that when when we are helping one side, we are not punishing another side because that other side did nothing wrong. They provided rental property. I I get so sick of watching politicians going out there and, and waxing philosophical and acting like they're compassionate because they're stealing from somebody else to give to somebody else. True compassion is when you actually give of your own money. And true opportunity is when you provide a good or service that somebody else voluntarily wants and there's a transaction there where both sides of the transaction can hold their head up high and both sides are better off as a result of the transaction. So that's what we should be encouraging. Not this sort of arbitrary executive power that comes in and decides and allows the CDC to decide what rental policy looks like. Absolutely absurd. And then finally, this whole issue with government education. I know a lot of you have heard me talk about this before. It's because it's one of the issues that I am most passionate about. And that is the idea that this, ultimately what this argument comes down to, again, I'm going I'm to repeat this. It is not CRT versus no CRT. It is not a bunch of standardized tests versus no standardized tests. It's not everyone wears masks versus no one wears masks. It's a question of, do we allow individuals choices and opportunities? Because guess what? We have it completely within our ability to end so many of these debates by just saying, we're going to give you a tax credit for where you want your child to go to school. Or another compromise would be the tax dollars for your child's education follows the student. And you can go out and find the education that works best for them. And if, and if you want a school that teaches a 1619 project and everyone wears a mask and they require vaccines, you can do that. But you don't get to force everybody else to do that. So this is a question between choice and force. And that's the way that we need to talk about it. I hear so many conservatives make what I'm just going to be honest are really bad arguments with respect to this. Because it's, it's inevitably a question of who's going to control the public schools. Here's an idea. How about we allow for individual choice? That way we don't have to beat each other up. We can still remain friends even though we have differences of opinion on something like wearing a mask. And I can get my child the education that works best for them. you can get the child education that works best for your child, and neither one of us are forcing the other to do what we think they should. That is a genuine solution that actually values individual liberty, freedom of choice and greater educational opportunity, and the alternative is force, coercion and government monopoly. Sorry, is what it is. All right. One other thing I want to put out there this is very important. Listen carefully. We're now switching the schedule a little bit, right? We've been doing these podcasts on Monday and Thursday. We're now gonna do it on Tuesdays and Thursdays. We just think that timeline works out a little bit better. Um, If you really like what we're doing and you're saying, Nick, Tuesdays and Thursdays is not enough, we need more. First of all, thank you very much. I appreciate the love. But what we need in order for you to prove that we need to dedicate the resources to expand this program, to offer more channels, we got another channel called The Why Minutes, two to three minutes. If you don't got a lot of time but you want to see these principles defended and talked about and have that kind of aha moment, The Why Minutes is a great option. But leave us comments, write us a review, give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, Go into the comments section on YouTube and on Facebook and let us know what you think about what we're doing, other topics that you would like to cover. We have built entire episodes based off of the comments section. Also, if you're watching this on YouTube, you can also tell me whether or not you like the beard. Right, That's, that's a new addition. Um, now, I will tell you that Tina always gets final veto power on all of my facial hair choices, but if you like the beard, you can let me know. Once again, this is Nick Freitas with Making the Argument. Thank you very much for listening. Please share it with your friends and we'll see you next episode.